0: Welcome to the fifth episode of the Fifth Quarter Podcast with me, David Elliott from Lanyon Group. We're brought to you this month once again with the support of Armagh City, Banbridge and Craigavon Borough Council's Food Heartland. This month, we're looking at the retail end of the food sector to find out how it is fair during the pandemic and Brexit. Two challenges which made the last year one of the most difficult on record. We're going to be chatting to Alex Green, who's the head chef at Dean's at Peak, who certainly wasn't idle during lockdown and opened his own artisan shop, fish and farm in Newcastle. He talks us through his experience of entering the retail world for the first time and how he focuses on sourcing as locally as possible. But first, we're hearing from Joe McDonald, the corporate affairs manager at Asda, who'll be known to many of you, to catch up on how the supermarket is coping over over a year after the first lockdown, he also sheds light on those early days of the pandemic when the industry worked together to feed the nation. Over to Joe. Joe, um, you are a well-known figure in the Northern Ireland agri-food world. Um, first of all, give us an idea of your career up to now and, and, and how you've got to work for ASDA.
1: Well, I was probably always on a trajectory into the food industry. Um, growing up, my father was always involved with cattle. He drove lorries, he worked on farms, and he was a part-time farmer himself. My mum's family were dairy farmers, and lots of people around me were working in the food industry. So everything pointed towards agri-food. And when I was at university, uh, they were promoting a degree, a master's degree in agricultural economics. And I took that, and that sort of pointed me definitely into the food industry. And I joined Moy Park back in 1994 as a graduate trainee and uh, I knew they were going nowhere. I knew they weren't going to expand and become a big company or anything. So I thought, right, well, forget about this. He said jokingly, <laughs> but the opportunity to come up with UFU <laughs> and I went into UFU in 95, uh-huh. uh, got into that whole world of policy, which I really enjoyed actually. Uh, that was just before the beef export ban. So the UFU kind of just became like headline news once the beef export ban uh, yeah. came into play and, in early 96 and took it from there I actually ended up with UFU much much longer than I ever envisaged I was there for 17 years went on to do their communications which I really enjoyed and finished my days in there actually looking after membership as well and then in 2013 the opportunity came along to join ASDA and I've been there for eight years. So I got lots of ribbing at the time about going across to the other side and all the rest of it. Um, But everyone wished me well, I have to say, and I've thoroughly enjoyed working for ASDA as well. So I suppose my claim to fame now is that I've worked in every link of the supply chain, and I've never really viewed it any differently other than we're all links in a chain. And if you take any link out, you don't have food on the plate. And funnily enough, we've seen that in the last year, you know, with the whole focus on feeding the nation. Never before has that been exposed more, just that concept that we're a food supply chain and we all if we don't all work together, the consumer doesn't get the product at the end, which is kind of what we're all aiming for.
0: And, and that was a real issue over the last year, particularly this time last year, when I, I suppose COVID was causing all sorts of disruptions to that supply chain. And then since the start of this year when Brexit was causing even more disruption to the supply chain, how has ASDA, as one of the major supermarkets here, how how did that affect you and how did you get around those issues?
1: Well, I think right at the very outset of COVID, ASDA made a decision at, in its boardroom that we would do the right thing the whole way through COVID, whatever we faced into. I never went to as many meetings at that time where people didn't know the answer to the challenges and the issues that were coming at us. <laughs> we didn't, we'd didn't. we never heard of social distancing. We had talked about panic buying, funnily enough, in the context of Brexit, but it suddenly appeared in the context of COVID and we were very much in the thick of that. As a business, at one point in April last year, we had 26,000 colleagues at home because of various issues around COVID, and the fact that people who were vulnerable were asked to stay at home for twelve weeks, and all the rest of it, so the the challenges to ASDA were coming thick and fast, and it was the same for our uh, supply base as well. And we, you know, the the agility that the sector showed at that time was incredible in terms of, for example, just rationalizing what we were sourcing from suppliers just down to the key lines and let's push out volume and let's try and get volume onto the shelves because our customers are just stockpiling and there's panic buying going on. We had to respond to individual issues like, for example, with food service closing down, there was an issue with a lot of higher value meat cuts hanging over the market. And the industry needing to move that product on. So we were partnering with ABP on a marketing campaign to drive sales, which was actually turned out to be very successful in the end around things like fillet sticks. We saw a 50% increase in sales. But just in those early days, people just wanted to buy pasta and mints and toilet roll and just survive for a month in a bunker at home. And we you know, this was this yeah. upended everything. So we worked our way through all of that. And the government involvement was actually very helpful. In in the UK, the government established the Food Resilience Industry Forum, and that brought everyone in the supply chain end-to-end, right from the farming organisations all the way through to retail, into a room every day to talk about the challenges. And that group met over 100 times in the last year, and it was a very, very important mechanism to identify the problems, to split off with the people that needed to talk about it and come up with the solutions. And I do think there's an opportunity going forward for that positive legacy to be captured somehow, because everyone just had to work together because we were facing into the crisis of our lives, of our lifetimes. So there's something there going forward that could be very positive. And, you know, we're emerging now slowly from it. Um, We are seeing, as a trend, customers starting to make more trips to retail and smaller basket sizes, whereas the initial reaction was shop once a week and fill your trolley to the the roof. And actually, a lot of people only shopped locally and didn't even turn out to the The big shop. The big shop came back. That was a headline. The big shop is back. And it was. But also the convenience shop, a lot of people just went to their their small store a mile from the front door because they just didn't want to be out and about. So slowly but surely, we're returning back to normal as the rules unwind. Um, But we also had massive shifts in the business in terms of, in particular, online. So, you know, we, Mm. we doubled our online business in eight weeks. You know, it's just incredible, you know, the kind of the the upscale. And we're now doing over 800,000 deliveries per week across the UK, potentially heading for 1 million deliveries in the UK. And these are, you know, numbers that we never imagined prior to COVID, but that's the type of massive shift Mm. that we've seen in in our consumer base so achieved things that we never thought were possible
0: and that online side of things is really interesting because you know it wasn't that long ago that um, you know it was being mooted that some of the supermarkets just couldn't get it right and and it was it was an expense you know but but now you know all the supermarkets seem to have really focused on it and streamlined it and it's a pretty slick process that that will be a major part of the business in the in the future <laughs>
1: Well, I think if you had any retailer on this call, they would all say the same thing. There's a lot of talk about what is called frictionless omni-channel retailing. what we're really saying saying there is into the future, even now and into the future, customers will shop where they want and when they want. And they have so many options now to do that. Some people do like to go to the big store and mull around and browse. And some people just want to hit their phone at, Eleven thirty thirty at night and place an order for something, so that 's the market we 're in, yeah, so asda has developed a very effective home shopping operation, but the costs are very high on that side of the business, so that is a challenge a daily daily challenge yeah. for the business to figure out how if that 's going to become a very big part of our business. you know how do you integrate that into your business model successfully so that 's an ongoing challenge, but asda has done very well at that um, and you know last year I saw a figure recently. Last year, eighty-six percent of UK consumers used Amazon at some stage during the year. You know, so pe- people yeah, have moved. People yeah. have moved across to that. There are thirty million millennials in the UK. You know, time poor, uh, shop little and often. Love their brands. Interested in health. Interested in innovation. Love tech, and they're using their phone and their apps, and they're you know their their food to go and their you know deliveries and just eat then there's it's just so there are just so many options now for consumers and then as well you know they shop around i mean 70 percent of ASDA shoppers also go to tesco you know people don't anymore oh well i shop in tesco oh well i shop in asda i shop in little they do mm-hmm. but they don't they they shop everywhere and they use every mechanism yeah. available so you know your parents and prior to that where maybe you went and got your groceries on a Thursday and that was it and you came home and you filled the cupboard and you waited till the following Thursday it's completely different it's a completely different world and it's accelerating wow yeah
0: I suppose it's just turned everything on its head really
1: well COVID was a a kicker for the online you know that really drove that Mm -hmm. and all everyone showed incredible agility to be able to upscale the operation. Now, it will be interesting to see as we emerge from COVID will it slow down, will it roll back a bit, or will the growth just continue? It's that's probably an unknown just right now, but that picture will emerge probably in the next six months. But the overall picture of customers having all these options and all this technology. And so many ways to do it. That's only going to keep keep going. And if you're in, you know, if you're in London or Birmingham, Manchester, you know, there are so many ways to dial up your food, your groceries. You could literally live by the hour now if you wanted. There are so many ways to get food mm-hmm. to your door. And if you fancy going out,
0: and, not in Port Ferry, there isn't. It's
1: coming, <laughs>
0: <laughs> um, Joe. I want to. Bring you back in in a way uh, just to that group, but first of all, I mean now that we're talking about the the options that are available to consumers, give us the give us the ASDA pitch. Why why would I go to ASDA over over all you know the the myriad of other supermarkets that are out there? Well, price is always at the heart of what ASDA does.
1: Everything that we do is built around price. David and one measurement in in retail is is something called the Grocer Thirty Three. And ASDA has been mm-hmm. the, the Grocer 33 lowest priced UK supermarket for twenty-three years running. So competing with the other big four, our kind of aim is great price, great product, and however our customers wish to shop. And that's kind of the the pitch, if you like. And it's it's built then on trust as well around the experience. So trust is everything. Trust is that we will be an everyday low price that when you come to the shop, it'll be hassle-free. You'll get in and out and you'll enjoy the experience. Trust that the colleagues will be happy to help, which is a phrase that we use. We're very proud of our colleagues and their kind of customer service. Trust that dates will be good. Trust that we're looking after packaging. Trust that our suppliers are fairly treated. It just goes on and on. Trust that we sell alcohol responsibly, et cetera, et cetera. So there there are a myriad of things then behind the the top line which is that you get great price and a great product in Asda.
0: Give us a bit of history about Asda's involvement in Northern Ireland because like all the supermarkets that are here now it's evolved over time uh, and it came with a big shift I suppose late 80s or early 90s I'm not entirely sure when when did Asda first arrive? Yeah
1: well it's funny Asda came to Northern Ireland in 2005. The the I think Tesco came first and that was just back in my early UFU days. I think Tesco came in the late mid to late 90s. So the story, this this really short version of the Asda story is Asda is a Yorkshire-based company. Actually, they had offices in Leeds and Associated Dairies and Farm Stores were formed in 1949 and that was just dairy farmers in around Yorkshire getting together and seeing the link between production and retail and they started to retail their goods and the company grew and grew in in England essentially in in north of England actually uh, all through the decades and then the kind of next massive change um, came in 1999 when ASDA as it had then become known was bought by Walmart And there was a long period where Asda was owned by Walmart and was part of that bigger organization in 28 or 29 countries globally. Came to Northern Ireland in 2005. So some of those Asda shops that you would walk into today, say in Dundonald or, Mm -hmm. you know, Bangor, they would have been prior to that, they would have been a Safeway. And prior to that, they would have been a Wellworth. So some people that work in Asda have done the whole thing, you know, Back in the 80s, they were working for Wellworth yeah. then, Safeway. Morrison's actually, funny enough, bought Safeway. And those stores, for a short period of time, were owned by Morrison's, but they never put their name over the door in Northern Ireland. And as they picked up the Northern Ireland stores in 2005, mm-hmm. which brings you through to the present day. We've 17 shops. We've a distribution centre in Larne. We've 4,000 colleagues. Big supply base here in Northern Ireland. Everything kind of largely headquartered out of our store in Antrim with a local band team there, etc. And then the company is changing hands again, actually, and it's moved back into UK ownership with two brothers from the north of England called the Issa Brothers, and their wider group are called yeah. the EG Group. And that begins now a new chapter for Asda over the next how many years under the Issa Brothers leadership. And we'll see what happens. For this audience, when they made the announcement, they made a big commitments around sourcing from the UK. So that will all roll out now over the next period of time as well. So we're going to see big change in
0: Asda over the next period of time. And that really going back into Northern England uh, ownership again from, from, I suppose, US ownership. Uh, and good to hear about the local sourcing angle, um, which I know just, just from, you know, same press releases in the past from, from, from Asda, there's a big focus for the company. And you do source a lot from from Northern Ireland can you give us a flavour of that and you you know some of the I suppose you have a great Feel for what's out there in terms of suppliers. um Give us a feel for what are the sources and and your your views on what we produce at the minute and what we can. Yeah, produce.
1: well, we funnily enough, just last week, as the published its first ESG report around corporate responsibility, and I did a word search on local, and it came up eighty one times in the report. So that's good in terms of just where it's being talked about. <laughs> We've got a band team in Antrim, and their job is to, as we we're saying, find those local suppliers and find the next big thing, you know, because there's always room for newness yeah. and innovation and who's got the next product that customers are looking for. So it never stands still. Across the UK, we would have about 300, what we call local suppliers, about 2,000 lines. Northern Ireland does very, very well out of that, you know, in terms of punching punching your weight and punching above your weight. So there is the, you know, the, there are the, the big brands, the Deal Farms and, and the ABPs. There's the... There's companies like Finnebrogue and Avondale who have you know very big contracts with Asda. Finnebrogue would be putting all of Asda's extra special sausages, that's our top own brand range, mm-hmm. right across the whole chain of six hundred and fifty stores. So they've been incredible with us. The innovation there, brilliant. Speaking of innovation, mass direct, you know, king of the innovators. They have great business with us.
0: Previous previous guests, oh, in this brilliant! Broadcast.
1: Well, you know they're so impressive. The way they just keep turning up every week with something new—it's it's amazing the way they operate. Clock being, then you scale Eggs and down to the farm level. You know people like Kevin Eggs who came on board. We did yeah. a supplier development academy uh, three or four years ago. Skye or Kevin Eggs turned up. We'd never met them, and you know it's been a big success ever since. They eventually got um, listed with us. And, you know, they have they've a great product and Glens of Andrum. And then outside of the core agriculture, you've got people like Irwin's and so on. So it's all there. It's all there. Um, and what Asda likes is what we talk about is long-term business partnerships. You know, we've been doing business with ABP forever, you know, and that's what you want. You want that stability of a long-term business um, relationship, long-term partnership, and engagement is very important to us, an openness. So I've hosted mm-hmm. a lot of businesses and organizations and journalists, et cetera, and politicians in our stores, you know, just walk the store and talk about what's on the shelves. You know, is Northern Ireland Farm Quality Assured prominent? Are the local brands prominent? What's the story behind the the brand sausages? Where do they come from? Why does the customer want to know or not know? And where you just end up actually with all those things is coming to the same point that we make, which is around customer listening. And that was the big lesson for me when I moved from UFU to Asda, was how much Asda is obsessed with listening to its customers. And you have to keep listening constantly, relentlessly to what they're saying, what their needs are, what they're thinking about next. And you have to keep responding to that and trying to stay ahead of that curve, so every time we bring our stakeholders into our stores, the conversation always ends up there you know you're 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 you've got a desire to source as much locally as possible. you want to get those brands on the shelves, and we do the real you know goal ultimately is can we get any of those suppliers to list nationally across the u k because then you're into growth and yeah. then you're into growing the economy here in Northern Ireland. But the only way you'll get there is through innovation and through knowing what the customer wants and what's on their mind. And you can't just throw a blanket over retail and talk about that because as this customer base will be different from the customer base of other retailers. So you have to slice it and dice it mm-hmm. in many different ways. So, you know, that's, that's an ongoing conversation. And then another thing that's another kind of, thing that's happening within all retailers really is something called range rationalization. So as they would have almost 50,000 product lines and it's actually, that makes the business very complex and complexity equals cost. Mm -hmm. And then you're going against the grain of what I said all along through this interview, which is price is so important. So what you're trying to do is if you've got 25 different types of tomato line in your shops, How do you get that to 15? So you're constantly trying to simplify the business and you're doing that through range rationalization so that you can lower your costs and invest that into price for the consumer. So that's the journey you're on. And then the trick is when a new supplier turns up with a great new product, how do you fit them into that model when actually what you're trying to do is take lines out? So it's a constant kind of push and pull in that sense. But what we do know, and it's back to the customer, is our customers really like local product on the shelves, and we're very mindful of that. So that always uh, kind of helps to win the win the argument when you're figuring out on the next range change, which is another retail term where every six months or whatever, we'll take the, take the, the shelf apart and put it back together again to look different, look new. How do you make sure that you're always creating the space for the local suppliers to, to to get onto the shelves, so you know it's it's endless. But I think our track record is tremendous, and our local supply base in Northern Ireland adds so much value to the business. is unbelievable.
0: Can, give us an example of a, a Northern Ireland supplier that supplies ASDA nationally, and and you know, and how it's broken, how, how it does that, Joe. Because I imagine. You know others in the in the food sector are are thinking yes it's it's great to be supplying locally, but i want to you know i want to take my business to the next level What do they need to do that well if you take if you take Phinebrook,
1: we'll we'll park put them on on side here as as an example, but the journey is really the beauty mm-hmm. of this is we have a band team in Antrim who are experienced at this know how asda operates, know the language that asda and our head office use, but they can take a small supplier in Northern Ireland. You don't even have to supply all the shops. They can actually start very small and put a small supplier into just one or two shops and just test the market. And then it becomes very commercial very quickly. I mean, either the consumers like it and buy it, or they don't. And then it's you know getting the commercials right in terms of cost because at the end of the day, as this business model overall is about volume. You know, when you grow volume, yeah. you you know you spread your cost we're able to invest that in price for the consumer and the supplier is into you know, growing sales and hopefully it's a win-win for all three parties. So you can start very small with that team in Antrim. And as you grow, and if your product is successful, then at a certain point, the introduction can be made to the national buyer in Leeds in the head office. And then really you're you're kind of... Because you're from Northern Ireland, counts for nothing then, because then you're just trying to sell your product into 650 yeah. stores across the UK. So you're very much exposed and on your own then. Is my product as good as I think it is? Is it as innovative? Is the price point right? Et cetera, et cetera. You know, sustainability, a huge agenda now as well. That's part of the conversation with every supplier because, you know, there is so much focus from consumers on net zero. Basically, It's going to be a huge conversation. How does it fit around obesity? You know, the whole, you know, HFSS debate, you know, fat, sugar, and salt. There are so many things. Where mm-hmm. does your product fit? What's going to catch the eye of the buyer in our head office and leads that's going to say, wow, we'll take that? And maybe the supplier from somewhere else in the U.K., misses out so like it, it, you know because you know we'd be pretty spoiled for choice in terms of suppliers from everywhere wanting to put stuff in so Finn and Brogue have been very successful in that because of their innovation and their hunger to do business and their willingness to invest and scale up and that extra special sausages contract was signed sealed and delivered at the Balmoral show must be four or five years ago now. I don't have the exact date. And they've never looked back, you know. And, you it's know, right. it's been uh-huh. tremendous. And, you know, just should say, or you know, we had a great relationship with Dennis in Phinebrook, and it's so sad. You know, we've lost him recently mm-hmm. and our condolences to his family and all his colleagues down there. But great product, great company. And that's what you're looking for in retail is people with that desire to, make it a success so there's there's there, there yeah. are case studies there and for other people that's maybe too much too too far to go the you know they're not there yet in their business plan but that opportunity is there and it is another i mean it opens up another debate really which you hear a lot in agri food in northern ireland around buy local and we should buy local and the thing we need to just keep reflecting on around that is where does that take you in the end? What are we going to do if all the As, the customers in Yorkshire, only want to buy from Yorkshire? Buy and all the Scottish yeah. customers in As they only want to buy Scottish? Then actually what you're doing is shrinking your market to 17 stores in Northern Ireland rather than yeah. growing it. So there's a balance to be struck really around that whole debate that we don't yeah. all just kind of believe our own publicity too much. You know, it's it's there's a bigger world out there to be serviced.
0: Yeah, it's 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 interesting, isn't it? And, and I'm glad you brought it up because it is one man's, uh, one woman's local is a, is somebody else's um, imported product. So it's it is it is definitely a balance to be struck. Um, Joe, I want to I want to take you back. You mentioned earlier on. I just I find it really interesting that meeting that you would have during the darkest days of of the early COVID days, where where you know the whole industry got together, sort of to talk. And to to figure out how to get product to consumers as as quickly and as e- as easily as possible in really really difficult times. Um, tell us a little bit more about that. Tell us how how it works. Some of the conversations that were in the room, because the food industry is notoriously cutthroat, and 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 you know it's 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 perhaps not not seen in that way, and there isn't enough of those conversations going on. Um, and, and it's just really nice to hear that that happened, and and how. And if it could be something that could be replicated in the future, well, it actually started
1: its life under. Uh, someone gave it the name a war room, which which <laughs> t- certainly describes the background. Everyone comes into the room, yeah. and who's in that room, Joe? Other other yeah, retailers, it's led other, led su- led, led by Defra, um, and they they brought yeah. in an, an independent ch- uh, chairperson, uh, Chris Tyeus, who had an. In- career in the food industry so we understood the supply chain and how the supply chain worked and uh, lots of expert support from for example people like public health england because everyone was trying to uh, define the problem and learn more about what Mm -hmm. what the what the enemy is here what is covid how does it spread what is social distancing what are what are we being asked to do and why so communication was key and it was very, very helpful to have a central trusted source where if, you know, experts were, were giving us advice in the food resilience industry forum, at least there wasn't 20 versions of it circulating in the industry. At least everyone kind of could go back to that central discussion point. So it it brought everything together in that sense. And there were multiple Uh, issues at the very at the very outset so things like the what was called the last mile which is the whole issue around vulnerable people and how do we move goods to vulnerable people there were huge asks on the retail sector take that as an example can you use your home shopping model to deliver food to the vulnerable across the uk but depending on the definition Mm -hmm. you use there are actually millions of people in the uk who are vulnerable and who were at risk of COVID and what we knew about it at that moment in time. So the the Food Resilience Industry Forum was a place to break that down. And retailers were able to say, well, look, we have X capacity, but it's it's nowhere near enough to solve that problem. So the food service industry are in the room, and strategically they're saying, well, we've just shut, but we've got – you know, we've, we've got a wholesale model here. We've got ways and means of moving goods uh, and we can step in to do that last mile. And so some people in the in the food service sector were able to step in and do that. Um, then there was lots of issues around absence across the industry. It was a huge issue. And that's where people like Public Health England were able to help us enormously in terms of, you know, how do we keep meat plants operating? How do we keep logistics on the road. Um, you know, practical things like how do we train new drivers to drive our home shopping vans? Yeah. How do we bubble in food plants so that if there's an outbreak it's contained to part of the uh, part of the site so that the rest of the site can continue to operate, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. So there mm. were a list the length of your arm of business critical. Potential interruptions to the supply of food, and the Food Resilience Industry Forum was able to. Uh, people were able to bring those issues as they had identified them in their sector to the table, and then we were able to branch off into working groups to solve those, and that was a tremendous piece of work. Now that was done under an emergency situation, but the model is there now. If people really wanted to solve, yeah, but I mean the onus, I mean the our feet were to the fire. So, like everyone was really like necessities is the mother of invention. Yeah. So you're in that environment. So if you take if you take something yeah. like climate change, I mean climate, we talk about a climate emergency. Why wouldn't you do the same thing for the climate emergency? You know, if you think about it, uh, sure. if you're if you're able to do it for the pandemic, and if you, I mean, if you talk about the climate emergency, there's no point in us all burying our head in the sand. On the climate emergency. I mean the global food industry, from production to sale, accounts for twenty five percent of global emissions. So we can't put our head in the sand. We need to talk about that. And I think when the pandemic subsides, hopefully fingers crossed, I think the climate emergency is going to come roaring back as a policy agenda. And you've COP twenty six in November in in the UK. And the whole net zero debate is going to be massive. And the industry, the agri the agriculture industry have talked about this recently, is going to need great communicators because you're going to have to yeah. talk about agriculture and its role and all the positives and ad- and address the negatives. Because we know agriculture has a lot to offer in this as well going forward. So
0: but it's not always seen that way. Agriculture, one of, the, one of the few industries that can actually sequester carbon as well, you know, and it's not something I, do, I don't think is, is known by enough people and, and needs to be communicated. Yeah, you're, you're, you're probably, I mean, I don't know, I can't prove this, but let's
1: let's ask the question, is agriculture in the problem box? In the, in the eyes yeah. of the general public and the narratives and the discussion around it. And if it is, then you're going to need really good communicators on behalf of the industry to, yeah. to talk about it and talk
0: about solutions. I, I think it is, Joe, because the, the the communication that a cow produced so much carbon it, um, was so good, and it was such a nice little visual that, uh, I, you know, I, I do feel that that's got into the public consciousness and that needs to be uh, it needs to be turned around, at the, the, the grass that that... Uh, Cows grazing on can can take a lot of the carbon out of the atmosphere. So yeah, it's an it's an interesting one. um Joe, we're, our time's nearly up, but I, I couldn't not ask about um Brexit because you know it's such a such a huge topic. And uh, just uh, how did how's ASDA coped over the transition period and and since then in terms of getting goods into Northern Ireland?
1: Well, I think if you if you go into an ASDA, you wouldn't notice. Right, so that's good. You don't need to know how hard we were paddling under the water, right? <laughs> enough, nothing, to here. nothing to see We, we are like on that duck on that water. Was, that was great, great, <laughs> we really are like that <laughs> duck on the pond, you know, paddling for all it's worth under the water and graceful on top, you know? Yeah. Um, the biggest issue in 2020... As Brexit came to a head, for want of a better way of putting it, was uncertainty. How do you invest in solutions when the problem is still being negotiated? And that became a real acute problem in the second half of 2020, because the first of January was a real deadline. There wasn't Mm -hmm. going to be another political uh, stay of execution on the overall thing. So that, and yet with all we still ended up with cliff edges, you know, the trade agreement wasn't actually announced until Christmas Eve and the 1st of yeah. January arrangements for Northern Ireland weren't really published. The final documentation wasn't published until about the 30th of December. So it was a very close shave on the 1st of January. Now, we operate currently under a reasonably simple model, which is pre-notification lorry level details are submitted. So we'll say, and as the lorry is leaving our depot in Britain, and it's heading for Northern Ireland, and we've the following categories on it, and you send that in in advance, and that's enough for now. Mm-hmm. That's the grace period arrangement, and that lasts until yeah. the one October. From one October on, currently, the UK government are proposing four phases of introduction of you know based on categories. So we'll start with meat. You'll need to do everything on meat. Then we move on to Fruit and veg, and move on, and so on. Um, but if you take a business like us, 40 000 to 50,000 product lines, over 200 lorries each week heading across the REC, a just in time business model, it's a very, very difficult, uh, almost overwhelming thought that we'll have to comply with line by line paperwork for all of that. So, yeah. what we would really like is a trusted trader scheme to simplify everything down as the only trades in Northern Ireland. We're not a a business that sends goods into the Republic of Ireland. So ironically, we see ourselves as absolutely no risk to the single market. And -hmm. that's what the EU want. So I think we can get there. But at the moment, we're just kind of, we could talk forever about it, but there are just certain things at the moment holding the whole process back from getting to a solution where consumers in Northern Ireland are get the best possible outcome, and I don't think that's on the table at the moment, but it needs to get onto the table
0: yeah that's that's interesting, you know I suppose you do have that 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 uh uniqueness of of not actually sending stuff down south so you, the, the trusted trader idea would 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 probably be a good one it's just yeah there's a there's a bit more of a cliff edge to come, and perhaps the food resilience industry forum could uh, reform for 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 that type of thing to get some decisions made before then but Yeah, okay. Um Joe, listen, I could talk all day and with so much to we've got through so much just there, but it's it's great to hear what you're doing, what Asda's doing and and some of the the issues that you're you're coming up against and and the opportunities as well. Um we wish you and Asda all the best in the future and thanks for your, your time today. It's been really interesting, so thank you. Thanks very much, Dave. It's been a pleasure. great insight there from joe on what has been quite a year for all supermarkets next we're going to hear from alex green i caught up with him a few days after dean's epic reopened after lockdown just before a very busy evening service
2: i suppose i started the hospitality industry or catering as like you like some people like to call it when i was 11 years of age so it was quite young and uh, Pot wash and things like that. There, so working my way up through the kitchen. Um, uh, and I suppose I never really like always. People always say to me, Oh, you must have had an interesting food. I had a bit of an interesting food. I worked in a farm, I was always curious to see where it came from and how, how it got from there to the plate. I think the curiosity was always there. But um, it was never, at really that young age, I was never going to say I was going to stay in the hospitality or I was never going to say I was going to be a chef or work in food or anything out like there. It was just, I suppose, getting in the kitchen, start washing dishes with a wee bit of pocket money. And uh, Alison was in the box head in the time started bringing me into the kitchen stuff. I think that's where a passion really started to go for it. And um, I didn't realise maybe, tell it what I was going to do until I was probably 13, 14, 15. It was over then, kind of years. Like, once I got to about 16, I was just like, right... I'm going to make a go of this here and I, I got really like more exposed to food and stuff and what was happening so I think for me there a lot of jobs a lot of career passing and oh, I'd done well at school I could have stayed on school I, mean, I always said no matter what I was going to do I was going to try my best at school so I always had that option I wasn't going to throw it away um, so i done well at school I could have went down the academic route um, but even getting GCL good GCSEs I was like no I'll not bother I'm going to stick at the chef and chair sure can always fall back and that if it doesn't work out and I think food's a big part of everybody's life maybe People don't realize it as such. Everybody needs steak. Hospitality is all around us. Uh, it doesn't matter what you go and do in life, even removing our food. Hospitality goes into so much, fa- so many factors. So I think for me, it was a big choice. I think it was always going to be a big scope and so many hours to go with. So yeah, so I've just spent my time working in good restaurants and trying to learn my career and learn my craft. I was always very interested in high end. I did know from a very early age, and not that there's anything wrong with, but I didn't want to be cooking fish and chips and doing burgers and things like that there. it just didn't interest me which is funny like and still to this day it doesn't interest me and I did have a go at it for a while but if I had to do it much longer it just wouldn't have been something I would say that so it was always a high end always something a wee bit different and just something you could really I'd be quite a fussy person quite a picky person uh-huh. and quite oh, neat to yes, so. me <laughs> so it was like it was all that aspect came into a whole lot so if it couldn't be at high end if I couldn't work at an high end I decided I was never going to do it so I kind of worked I just worked in a couple of Good restaurants, a Gordon Ramsay group. I worked in New Zealand, a couple of good restaurants. Once I got past sixteen, it was primarily all Michelin-star restaurants. It's a big learning curve too, and I think that's a good thing about the job and and the career I chose. There's so much, like outside of hospitality, outside of food. There's still so much you can learn. It takes in so many journeys. And it's been really good that aspect, but um, yeah, and I've been back home now, brave, for some seven or eight years of working the sites for a wee bit, and then I got this position where I'm in now, it was deemed a big head, so I have a a peak, obviously, the a and star, and I love it, like, it's just, there's nothing else I want to do. Do you know what I mean, Michael's fantastic, and uh, I guess people like Michael in the hospitality industry that want to invest in other like, you need people to invest in you too, like, and I think that's where I invest my time in Michael and his business in the same aspect he invests his time in me. I think people like that got in the hospitality industry is very important because if you don't have people that want to spend the time or spend the effort or spend the money and then invest in people to make make the industry better and make the people better, yeah. then we're never going to get anywhere. Do you know what I mean? It, it needs to be. So that's what's key with Michael. He's invested a, like a lot in me as well as I invested a lot in him. And uh, I'm very happy here at the minute. Obviously, with lockdown and stuff, it's um, it made things very difficult. And we're off work and I had never been out of work in my life. Obviously, and there was a few jobs. And we did. We did do the boxes like the catering boxes and stuff like that got there but it was just i was just like we'd done them for about 10 weeks but it just wasn't the quality and the rest sometimes levered in the box and it was really annoying me and irritate me i think we're stopping this because i'd rather do nothing than do this yeah. so we'll stop them and then of course they would have a bit of a property portfolio but it always been like something a double then a wee bit right, right um just as just as outside investments i think and it's just like i thought right okay this time i'm gonna I want to do something with food-related. I'm not ready to leave the restaurant. I'm very happy here. So I want to do something alongside the restaurant. So I thought I would open the, the fishing farm, what I call a fishing farm in Newcastle, and it is exactly that. I think it's just captures for me. Newcastle, primarily, first of all, you go out through Northern Ireland, there's butcher shops everywhere. There's pultiers everywhere. There's everything, like Foodway, Delicatessen Halls. But there was this, this aspect of getting a fresh fish shop just doesn't exist. And it does exist, but very on a very poor, low scale, and sometimes quite poor so I said right I'll give it a go I didn't know if it works so, and I know a lot of friends that are fishermen involved in the fishing and I said like, why not we'll do this aside. we'll put a I'll get a couple of staff members I'll work in it with them we'll do a few nice marinades and dry aids and fish and things like that so we opened up a fishing farm the ethos that it had to be everything from the island Like the shop wouldn't work on this it was from everything from the island so then with that in mind I started to shop on a load of local products that we use and Deans of Peak and stuff like that there mm-hmm. so I knew a lot of local producers, so it was nice to get their products in the shop alongside the fish. And uh, game with the cheese, the local cheese aspect of it too, like a bit of a cheese corner. Again, it was a shop for me, nearly. It was made fish, cheese, and a lot of local nice stuff. So, but um, the local community seemed to have like, really grabbed on to it. Uh, they're really buying into the fish aspect. Uh, a lot of people are because it is supporting local domain, I don't have any... Um, the only thing I have in the shop is not local is a French and Swiss cheese because people keep asking for it for a company in three So, like, it's just, like, starting the need of the customer. But right down to the charcuterie and the meats and all, they're all made, Corndale Farm. Yeah. Um, So everything, I didn't want to source anything that wasn't outside. It wasn't from outside Northern Ireland. I think that was very key and aspect of shopping. I'd love to build a shopping culture around that. I mean, I think it's very important, again, to support local people, support local producers, and the product's fantastic. So... And back in the kitchen This is our first week back in the kitchen. We're opening the rest on next week and there's a lot happening and a lot going on. So it's just in a balance of two nice so.
0: so obviously you're juggling quite a few things. How was it stepping into the retail world coming from the kitchen must have been quite a shock?
2: That's that is the big aspect. Like something like, may seem like what's the danger of this retail shop and people saying like you must have a lot of waste and you don't sell them, you do it with wasted. It. And I like, think you've got to you've gotta accept with the fish and level of wastage is going to be there. And you've got to factor that fact- into your cost. And so, and like, I'd be very honest with the customer and stuff like that. There, do you know what I mean? If they say, well, why is that cost? Like, there's like, I can't go every week sustain a loss and it's not factored into the price. So you've got to factor into the price and get a price that's fair to the customer, but get all the price that we can succeed, pay with and make a profit. And that's where it has to be. So... It is a big juggling match. Like it's, like it's like we are and we do have wastage and we marinate fish and cure fish, which gives us more time like the time stuff on. That's what I always say. and it's quite I know I understand why people don't go into I understand why people don't do it and don't go into that industry. Like a butcher shop you've got a peat time in your fridge for a month and they could turn it around ten times and marinate and put in a skewer on the fourth week and it's fine doing the selling, we get away with it. Yeah. I don't have that like you don't have other fish. I mean some fish you have maybe three, four days max and yeah. that's it. So like it's if you get a couple of quiet days and you've ordered the same stock, it's just not good. So you do have wasted and stuff like that there. But um, it's also opened my eyes to like fresher products, like from like fresh dealing with the markets and stuff, because we're using quite a few of them in the restaurant now. So it's kind of cutting out in the middle man. So like i going to the markets in the morning, and come straight into the restaurant too. So it's been a big learning curve for me in that aspect. And it's opened again some other aspect of being in the kitchen and being, being in things. It's, it's probably another aspect of them too. But yeah, retail retail for me has definitely, I always knew it was going to be a bit more difficult than being in the kitchen and being a chef where you're not confronted with a customer. Yeah, you get a few comments back from the customer maybe, but it's indirectly. As well, when I'm in the retail, you're dealing directly with the consumer. And uh, as much as, like, I'll be honest with people too, as much as like, it is it is very, the, I think the most difficult thing about any job, if you're dealing person to person with the consumer it's always like it, there is going to be cases where it's quite difficult, and uh, everybody's needs and everybody's expectations are always different, or what they want to do or what they want to pay for things. So like there's always an aspect. Retail is not easy. There's no doubt about it. So, I mean, I think in the day's age, like I know a lot of there's four or five companies offer fish boxes delivered to the door, for example. So like that's coming in a retail shop. I mean, you go online order what you want, this posted to the door. Like I know a couple of fish factories and stuff do that there, yeah. but I think. It's, people keep asking, me, well, do you see a place for this? Could you do this again? I could. Like, the way I say, I could, say, I could roll out more. It'd be nice to do something in Belfast and a bigger aspect of it. Um, and think what's, what's unique about Fish and Farm is it's not your ordinary retail retail person working behind the counter. These are chefs working behind the counter. They're not, they know what they're talking about. They intend to cook things. There's that aspect. A whole lot of people are scared about it too. Scared to be cooking fish, scared to be doing that there. So that aspect all comes in that the guys in the shop can talk to them and talk them through it and give them ideas. I would, it's a model I'd love to work on and, not, and bring meat in the more we do do a bit of Harryford beef and stuff because it's just something I work with so it's a model I'd like to work on and build maybe take it somewhere else because I do believe that it could be extremely successful, I just don't believe it's out there. Do you know what I mean? And if you've chefs and they're smart and know what to do with fish and know how to get rid of it and know how to turn it around, things like that, and look after it and give advice and cook, and it's like so. It's like you're again like doing your groceries, but with it, you're getting given ideas and you're getting told how to cook things. And people seem to really like that and take on with it.
0: And so I imagine that because of lockdown and people really just reaching out for local food, there's such a demand for what you're offering.
2: Yeah, for sure. But like, it's, you know, people say you're mad opening a shop during the middle of. The, in the middle of the pandemic and basically when I went to do this and like it was days I was like I stood in the shot the day before open and I was like what the hell am I up here like, am I mad in the head I was like see if it was three months ago I, would, I just slapped yeah. myself in my face and told to walk I mean you know? like I shouldn't have done it but, and like there's still days like I love it and it's been it's been a massive learning curve it's been it's been a lot of work but it's been at the end of the day would i change it Would i do i would still do it all again because however it would turn out down the line i still believe that we've got a very unique product and it's very it's very unusual open the during lockdown people like you're mad but i think that's part of the success in shop like you say yeah because nobody's going out to restaurants nobody were we work getting exposed to fish and nicely finished off products and things like that there they were going to the supermarket and people get bored and going home every night and cooking the same things so they were buying in that aspect and they coming into the shop and it was something new during lockdown and again people were sitting at home and get out and have a look we were open to in the shop at a time social distancing and again it's just I think lockdowns obviously really contribute to the success of the shop because if I had opened it during normal time I don't think it would have had the same it would have had the same impact of course it would have still been great and stuff but there's a lot more going on. People are a lot more occupied with things. But when the shop was open, it was like, Well, oh, this is something different. We'll get something here. I can't get out to the restaurant to get my piece of fish every weekend because I don't like to keep fish in the house. So I'll go to the shop now and I can get it. Yes, I think, since most people say, oh, they hate COVID. And then the COVID wasn't good for them financially. For me, I think it's on the flip side. COVID for me gave me an opportunity. It's something I could have never done if I'd been in the restaurant. So the shop wouldn't have happened. So the shop wouldn't exist only for COVID. And I don't think the shop would be as successful as it has been to date without COVID as well. So for me, it has COVID has been very beneficial. But at the same time, I'm going back to work now, it's left me and it's left me more busier than I ever was.
0: definitely not much time left in alex's day but great to see another brilliant entrepreneur in the sector with that our fifth episode of the fifth quarter podcast comes to a close i hope you've enjoyed it um please do get in touch if you want to tell us your agri food story i'd like to thank our city bambridge and craig avon borough council's food heartland for their support and to all our contributors for their time thanks for listening and look out for next month's episode